I'm introducing my guru brother, my friend, and an interesting being. If you read the book, boy, is it, is it wonderful? Is it wonderful? I love when we can gather around spiritual product, uh, spiritual topics. And this is certainly one of them. <laughs> this is Larry Brin. I'm Richard Albert. <laughs> Thank you, Dick. <laughs> Hi. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, what, a wonderful, what a wonderful place. And uh, my wife, Girja, who's there, we're staying at Ramdas's house. And it is, uh, it's the most, I don't know, in our life right now, in these unsettled times, it's such a wonderful place to go and reconnect with my teacher, the ashram that we lived in in India, Kenshi, and to think about the moment in time that we're in. Uh, when I look at it, Ramdas says, "Just remember, this is this incarnation is just one turn of the wheel." It's not our entire lifespan, not our entire life. But these are very difficult times to figure out <coughs> how do we do the right thing? What is the right thing in this cycle of life? When I started to write this book, it was, uh, well, it was 40 years ago <laughs> when I started to write this book. But it, the idea was to write about two miracles. First, the miracle that smallpox was eradicated. And smallpox was the worst disease in history. It, it killed half a billion people, 500 million in the 20th century. When I started to write this book, it was about two miracles. And one miracle was that the worst disease in history had been eradicated, eliminated. Eradicate means pulled out from the roots. And smallpox, during the summer of love, when I first came from Detroit to California in 1965, 1967, uh, there were three million people who died of smallpox that year. And we didn't know that. It wasn't part of our life or our daily encounters. 
20 kings and queens and emperors died of smallpox, which I think is important in this moment because it's a reminder that we're all the same. We're all in it together. It's also a reminder that you can be the wealthiest, the most powerful person in the world, and it still can't protect you from dying from a virus if you don't have an antiviral or if you don't have a vaccine. So we eradicated smallpox. That's a miracle. But for me, the real miracle was that when Giraj and I were living in Kenshi, one day our guru, Neem Kroli Baba, called us. And he, he called me. He said, Dr. America, which is what he called me. And I was mad because he gave Ramdas the name Ramdas, and he gave Krishnadas the name Krishnadas. And I wanted to be a Das brother, but he called me Dr. America, which was a bummer. But he called me and he said, Dr. America, how much money do you have? Which was a little apprehensive making. And I said I had $500. And then he said, no, you're lying. Jute Bolo. How much do you have back in America? And I said, well, I have $500 back in America too. And he, he did this thing that he would do. He put his hand on his head like a fortune teller, and he said, $500 here, $500 there. You are no doctor, which is exactly what my mother said to me. <laughs> if I hadn't made more than money than that, I was clearly not a real doctor. And then he began in a very sing-song way, and all this is in Hindi. He's saying, you are no doctor, you are no doctor. And then he looked at me with this kind of mischievous glint, and he said, Dr. America, UNO doctor, United Nations organization. Dr. America is going to become United Nations doctor. You're going to go to villages and give vaccinations, and God is going to eliminate this one form of suffering from humanity and lift it off the shoulders of humanity. God. And I didn't have any idea what the hell he was talking about. I couldn't imagine. I, I kept on talking to the translator and saying, did he say I'm supposed to give him a vaccination? I mean, I just I really... And Giritja was there. We just didn't understand. It just didn't make any sense. We were living in an ashram. I had hair down to the middle of my back. I had a beard here. I was wearing a kurta pajamas. And he said, you're going to go and work, and you're going to become a United Nations diplomat and help eradicate smallpox. And that's really what I want to talk about. Because that's the miracle. Who Maharaji was, how he knew what he knew, how he did this to Richard Alpert, <laughs> and to our whole culture. How, 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 how a guru can transform you just by being in his presence. And I know we had the same experiences, a lot of the same experiences, but the one that, that I remember so vividly is when I first went to Kenshi, when my wife, Girija, dragged me to Kenshi. Yes. I didn't want to go. I mean, I didn't want to go and, you know, be in a place where there was a fat old man in a blanket and you had to touch his feet and all these idols all around. I mean, my Ju Judaism didn't allow for idol worshiping. I was really not excited about that. Of course, ultimately, it was obvious that I was wrong about that, but at the time, I didn't know that. 
But I remember when he first grabbed my hand and held my hand and he looked up into the stars and you could feel the love that he had for everybody. White or black, rich or poor, male, female, anything else. He loved everybody. And even for a moment when I would think, okay, it's not that big a deal that he loves everybody in the world. That's his job description. He's a guru. That's what he's supposed to do. You know, a rabbi, a priest, a guru, he's supposed to love everybody in the world. But then it, you know, my, my spine began to buzz. And I felt this weird feeling come over me. And suddenly I realized that it was love. And I loved everybody. I loved the people that I hated. I loved the people that made me come to WHO 17 times before they gave me a job. I loved the people that almost kicked me out of my internship because I snuck away and lived on Alcatraz for a while to deliver a baby. I loved everybody. And I didn't know that this machine was wired, was capable of feeling that way. I didn't, I didn't know how to turn the off switch off and, and the on switch on. But I realized I had met somebody who did. And that's, that to me was the real miracle. And you guys are really lucky because you live here in Maui and Ram Dass has said he's never going to leave here. So you get to meet him from time to time. And we were fortunate to meet him first in 1969-1970 when he came and gave a three-part lecture series at the Unitarian Church on Goff in, in San Francisco. And I was an intern and my wife was a probation officer. And I had one day a week off, which happened to be Thursday nights, the night that he was giving his talks. And we came to every one of those talks. And at the end, he said that uh, if we wanted to stay in touch, that he was going to write a book. And uh, we could leave $3.33 at the door and our address. And he would send us this book, which was going to be called Be Here Now. And uh, I never did get it. <laughs> huh? And I still want that boxed copy. But, but years later, uh, when Girich and I had uh, lived on buses uh, as part of the Hog Farm Commune with our dear friend Wavy Gravy and all of the costume characters uh, that we love so much, and we traveled by bus from uh, Canterbury in England, from London. We drove to Kathmandu. We lived in Turkey and Iran, Afghanistan. Iraq, Pakistan, India, Nepal. We looked like Martians as we drove through every little village. And every time we, we stopped, we'd open up the buses and 40 crazy-looking hippies would descend on Kurdish villages at the foot of Mount Ararat. Or if it was a Muslim village, they would take us into the center of their town and I would pull out my medical supplies and I would patch people up and Wavy would pull up his bucket of toys and would start blowing bubbles. And if it was a Buddhist village, there'd be a, an image of Buddha in the middle of that most sacred place in that Buddhist village. If it was a Muslim village, there'd be a picture of Mecca. If it was a Hindu village, there'd be a statue of Ram or Vishnu or Shiva. If it was a Christian village, there'd be a 
cross and a picture of Mary? Not every time, but two out of ten times, three out of ten times, right next to that cross, right next to that picture of Mecca or that image of Buddha or that image of Vishnu, there'd be a picture of John F. Kennedy. And that's what America represented as we went through these countries that my kids cannot drive through in buses in psychedelic colors. The world is a different place. And it's going to be a long time before there's a picture of or Krishna or Jesus or a picture of Mecca. And this world that we are entering into tomorrow is a different world. It's, it's a world that none of us have been in before. We don't know what to expect. Many of us are very worried. And it was that that, that made my book change as I was writing it. Because when I was first writing it, it was enough to write about. It was enough to write about the greatest thing that happened to me is to meet Maharaji. And in addition to that, I wanted to tell the story of a time that we didn't hate each other. That the centrifugal forces that are ripping us apart as a nation and a world had a counteracting story. I wanted to write about a time that Christians and Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and Baha'is and Jains and Shinto all work together to, to, to do something great, to eradicate the worst disease in history. Our meetings, had, faces looked like a rainbow. There were black faces and white faces, faces of every color of the rainbow. And there were doctors from 170 countries. We were 150,000 people. And we had to knock on every door in India and search for hidden cases of smallpox every month for 20 months. We made two billion house calls. And Russians and Americans who had 40,000 nuclear weapons pointed at each other. We buried 40,000 hatchets and we worked together. And instead of fighting each other, we fought together in a common cause. And that's who we are. That's the people that we are. That's our, that's our species that can rise above the difference between nuclear Armageddon, bury the differences of the animosity of all the races and colors and religions in the world, and get shit done. And now we're being tested. Because we have all over the world, it's not just Trump, it's Brexit, you know, it's Le Pen in France. Now we're being tested whether those centrifugal forces will split us apart, whether we retreat into our silo, our communities that are sorted by race and economics. If you look at any of the demographic distributions in the United States, we're sorted 
by race, by demographics, by chance, by luck. And now the question is, can we put this Humpty Dumpty back together again after we've been through these polarizing political campaigns? If England leaves the common market, if it leaves the European Union, if France goes to this race-baiting, right-wing, xenophobic community that's ascendant in France, and if we succumb to the worst temptations of this new president, I think he's got some things about him that we will find that will surprise us to the good. But there are a lot of things that could surprise us really to the bad. And we've got to figure out how to stick together. And we've got to bring the best that we can bring to these next few years. Because Ramdas is right. This is only one cycle of the wheel. This is one incarnation that we're living now. But we're privileged. We're lucky. We're in Maui. <laughs> There are a lot of people who are going to be hurt by the policies that this president says that he's going to impose. We need to protect them. We need to be there for the poorest and the most vulnerable of us. That's the challenge. If we can bring them all into our ohana, make them all part of our family. And I'll just uh, I'll close this part, and then we can have questions or comments from everybody and. Uh, but I'll just tell you, um, I was invited to the Pentagon a year and a half ago. I think they had a program uh, of bringing, you know, the weirdest thinkers they could bring to the Pentagon or something like that. And I got an award and I was invited to come and speak to the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And more importantly, I was invited to speak to uh, three and a half million soldiers, sailors, Marines on Pentagon television. You didn't know there was Pentagon television. I didn't know there was Pentagon television till I went then, and take their questions for two hours. It was really wonderful. And I also addressed uh, the Joint Chiefs and all the admirals and generals in the Pentagon uh, Auditorium, which holds about 500 people. And it, it, you know, I can't see a lot of you guys because there's, there's no lights back there, but if this were the Pentagon Auditorium, I'd have no trouble seeing because the brass, you know, all the, the light, which is all the metals, you know. And I got up there, and um, I was supposed to talk about what my, my business is now, which is threats to national security, nuclear weapons, cyber weapons, climate change, pandemics, bad stuff. I sort of specialize in bad things. <laughs> and um, I, I, I thought, you know, they introduced me. I was a, a guest of the Secretary of Defense, and they introduced me. And I said, I, I had a slideshow. So the first slide that I put on, I said, you know, I think that if I'm going to be talking to you about threats to national security, I think we ought to be honest with each other from the very beginning. And I put up a picture of Girij and I in the Khyber Pass with our hippie bus, psychedelic painted. Did I mention psychedelic painted? Yeah, just be sure. And uh, we were wearing our hippie clothes, and I was smoking a doobie. And there was no doubt that it was a doobie, and I was smoking it. And I just said, uh, before I start talking to you about asymmetrical threats to national security, I want to make sure that you've seen this photo. 
and that you know about this because there's only two possibilities. Either you know about this and you still invited me here, <laughs> which is good on you, <laughs> or you don't know about this, then we're really in trouble because you're the Pentagon. <laughs> and, you know, that was a risk. I didn't know exactly what they would do. Um, and I waited a minute and they stood up and they, they started applauding and laughing and I knew, okay, this is going to be okay. <laughs> this is going to be okay. We can really talk. Um, and I think that's sort of how we sort of have to behave in this new world. We have to, we have to be true to ourselves and who we really are and out with it. And yet we have to realize that we're really all in this together. And these are going to be hard times. And to the extent we can force ourselves to remember that we're all part of one family, that we're all in it together, we'll get through this. That's what Obama said this afternoon. He said, don't be afraid. We will survive this. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm happy to answer questions, read from the book. We can chat. Question. You mentioned it's time for us to make sure we are together. How, how do we do that? How, how, I, I can repeat it if you want me to. How can we be sure that we, how do we know how to be together? It's everything all at once. If there's a, I mean, I'll just tell you for me, if there's a forced registry of Muslims in America, I'm putting my name on that list. You know, if, if there's a chance to march peacefully and, and show that we, we don't agree with the mass expulsion of dreamers and immigrants that are here illegally, I'm marching. And I didn't expect to be doing this. I thought at my age I could just sit back and write a book. But it, 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 it's just not the way it's going to go. You know, and, and every way we can, and talking to each other, and, and talking the way Ramdas talks about that it's, 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 not, you know, it's not just today. It's, you always have to be mindful of the, of the greater picture of existence that we're part of. A march, the outward march, march in, in protest, but you have to march in protest Recognizing your soul and the souls of your enemies. I can get into a march that are a protest, and radiate from me. peace and love so the other people around me in 
is realizing that same thing. That's what our charge is in that I'm putting it baldly saying, spread love, spread love. You know, I, I, w I wish that everybody here could have met Martin Luther King. I was privileged to meet him when I was 18. And I was a student at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And um, he came to campus on a day that those of you who've been in Ann Arbor know that some, you're taught when you're young that rain falls, you know, kind of vertically. In Arbor, sometimes rain falls horizontally, and you just can't even walk. It was such a terrible day. And the place that he was speaking, which was supposed to hold 3,000 people, there were only a couple hundred kids who showed up. And so he invited us all to sit with him on the stage. He invited us to sit in front of the stage. And we stayed with him for hours. And that's what he talked about. He talked about love thy neighbor. He talked about you can't see the person who's hitting you, even if he's hitting you with a club in your back as the other. You can't hate him. If you hate him, they win. And I don't think anybody was ever the same who was there that day with Martin Luther King. We all marched, went to Mississippi, we all went to Selma, we all marched against the war. But it, our group, not everybody, always followed Gandhian principles. And what Martin Luther King said to us that day was that the, you, you've heard part of this, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. You've heard that part of it. But it's the second part that's really important. He says the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, but it doesn't bend towards justice on its own. You gotta jump out of your chair, leap up, grab that arc, and bend it towards justice. There's something for us to do. It doesn't happen unless we play our role in it. And we were trained... Many of you are too young and can't hear anything because this has just gone off. Oh, is that better? Can you hear me in the back? Can you raise your hand? If you, yes? Okay. Uh, you're the young ones who won't remember uh, this, but you know when I was growing up and in high school, uh, the, we had nickel and dime stores. That's a joke, you know, the nickel and dime somebody. But, but that's what we had. We had Woolworths. And Woolworths always had a, a counter that served sandwiches. I'm speaking to the young people. We know this. And they had two counters. And one was for white people and the other was for colored. And surprisingly, the colored always seemed to run out of sandwiches. And we were trained as activists to sit at the counter, and they had a, a dummy counter at the NAACP where we trained. And we would sit there, and uh, we would have a sit-in, and people would come from behind us and hit us in the back with a, a stick and we were supposed to not ever get angry and to never respond. 
And, you know, years later, sitting in a Zen monastery, <laughs> it was the same damn thing, you know. <laughs> And that, that, that was the training that we went through so that when we marched, we didn't hate. We didn't hate the police. You, know, you can't hate the police. I couldn't do that job. You don't, you don't hate Trump. You may hate the deeds that are done towards people who are poor and vulnerable. But if we march with hate, we lose. It's not easy. This is, it's harder. <laughs> it's, it's, it's harder. But that's, that's the answer, I think, to your question. It's harder, and we have to do it. And, you know, this has just been declared the hottest year in history. It's the third year, 2016 is the third year in a row that is the hottest year in history. 16 of the hottest 17 years in history occurred in the last 17 years. We... It, it, it's not a question of these are just Republican policies or Democratic policies. That's not what this is about for me. You know, your children, your grandchildren are going to inherit a world. You live on an island, the seasonal rise. So we don't have a lot of choice but to re-engage. We may have thought that we had gotten a pass. We may have thought we were, we were over this stage of our, our life. But we're not. We're back into it. How would you like your book received by people? What is the intent for us to understand through it? Um, I, I guess in a way I, I would like that book to be a proof point in the debate about whether as, uh, as human beings we can make the world a better place by doing things that have absolutely no benefit to us individually, personally. That it, 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 it wasn't because I was worried about getting smallpox. I was vaccinated. It wasn't that any of the people who were working in the campaign worried about their kids. We we could enlarge our, our field of vision beyond ourselves and our families. And I would go further than that, people that looked like us. In fact, I had a, um, a mentor, he's still my mentor. Uh, his name is Bill Fagy. You wouldn't necessarily know who he is except that he was the head of the Center for Disease Control. And then he became the head of the Carter Center and then he was the uh, he was the billionaire whisperer who whispered in Bill Gates's ear that he should start a foundation to work on global health. Bill was the person who showed me my first case of smallpox. He took me to the village and you know broke my heart. I started crying. Um, but he was a philosopher. He still is a philosopher. I shouldn't put him in the past tense. Um, and and he was also he is also a six foot nine inches tall. So we went into our first village and uh, the kids wouldn't come up to us. We wanted to vaccinate them and they were terrified of, of these foreigners who come into their village. And 
I spoke Hindi, and Bill asked me to say in Hindi to the village headman, tell the children the tallest man in the world has come to their village. <laughs> and then they all came. Um, but that gives you a, kind of an idea of this his pixie-like sense of humor. Um, Bill, we had a lot of time on the road going to villages, and we talked about the meaning of life. He was a Lutheran. His father was a Lutheran minister. His grandfather was a Lutheran minister. I talked about Maharaji. He talked about Jesus. But we, had, we asked a lot of questions of each other. And one day I said to him, Bill, you think about everything. And you have a spiritual orientation. Have you thought about how you would like to die? Giridji and I had just been with Karmapa. And Karmapa would always ask everybody, are you ready for your death today? So I asked Bill, have you thought about how you'd like to die? And he said, yeah, I have thought, thought about that a lot. He said, uh, first of all, I'd like my life to have some meaning. So therefore, I'd like my death to have some meaning. So I want a meaningful death. And second, I want to be courteous. I don't want to be discourteous to my family. I'd like to die at a time that I know that I'm going to die, a date, a day that I'm going to die, so I can say goodbye to everybody and tell them how much I love them and not leave them in the lurch. So it, it, my death should have some meaning. It should be at a date certain. You know, not necessary, but if it's possible, I'd like it to be quick. This is one for me. You know, instead of lingering around for a long time, I'd like it to be quick. And yeah, if you can kind of skip the pain part, you know, that would really be nice. So meaningful death, date certain, quick, not a lot of pain. So he said, I've decided I want to be executed. <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, but, but executed for some really meaningful, I mean, protest against corruption or I want, I mean, really, I mean, but, but he said, and he said, and the moment that you think of that, that the, the greatest thing you want to have as your death is to be executed, all of a sudden it opens up all sorts of possibilities for the way that you mean. So I sort of feel that about my book. I, 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 w I would like it to be meaningful. I would like people to read it and think that we're not all a bunch of dumb fucks. We're not incompetent. We don't hate each other. There are times and, 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 and historically important times. You, this can't be made up. We're, I'm not making up this. You can't make it up. It's a, real, it's a real fact that happened. Smallpox was eradicated by a group of people who were willing to do extraordinary things, but they were ordinary people. And that's, I'd like it to, to have that effect on people. And, and so far it is having that effect on people. I get, I get emails, sometimes dozens, hundreds at a time from people who've read it and said, you know, it, this has nothing to do with my job. I'm a farmer. I have land. It's always losing money. I don't know why I do it. I keep on thinking I'm going to quit it. And then I read your book and now I'm really, I know exactly what I'm going to do. And I can't make that connection, <laughs> but they did. And that's what I want. I hope it happens. <laughs> he said he had that same question for you, maybe about the book you're writing now. I'm writing two books. One is about death, which Bill 
and uh, when it's about me, I guess all, all my life, my when I study my life, there's a, um, my first half of my life is power, power, power. My mother, a powerful woman. My father, powerful man. My brothers, powerful people. One was a high jumper and the other was an organist. They're all They all be, came before me, and so I my first years, my power has being acute one, acute one, and. Isn't he cute? <laughs> and I got beaten up by people. The schoolyard. I went to prep school and that's where I realized that I was a homosexual. That but I now know I'm, I'm a soul, and souls don't have sex. <laughs> Damn. Remember, <laughs> 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 and I had. Um, psychedelics and met Maharaji. <clears throat> the whole psychedelic and met Maharaji my perception of myself and, and the world 
was different. Now I find that early years did Maharaji affect that affect that uh, when I, I got beat up his heat boy come on I think that the things that I've wrestled with, with the the the, the book, whether I write it from. from the soul point of view or from the ego point of view. Because some people say you pretty damn well better be truthful. The period of time when I power, power, power. I wasn't a very nice person. Do I do that? Or do I have to say I'm a soul, I'm so, I have this life, wasn't very nice. But I love, I love who I was. Goes Maharaji. affected us both. By turns of because one of the people write a truthful book Write a loving book. Yeah. And I'm wrestling with that kind of thing. 
my book. Truth, love, both, both, raise your hand if it's both. That's just to increase the level of difficulty. <laughs> Thank you. I want to read it. I, I have a question. Ron uh, has told me this doesn't matter, but I'd like your opinion about the, the current state of rationality. Do you think that it's in danger? He, he's the rational one. <laughs> You're the dangerous one? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> I mean, I'd, I'd like to respond to that uh as a scientist and as a as somebody who's the beneficiary of the Silicon Valley technology explosion, um, I I am worried. Uh, we we were talking about this a little earlier. Uh, you know the OED, the uh, the Oxford Dictionary of the English Language. Uh, the OED every year uh, enters one or a small number of new words into that dictionary. And, and last year, one of those words was post-truth, hyphenated. So post-truth is a little bit like post-rational, non-scientific. And they define it quite carefully, as a way of explaining public policy and events that are chosen and adjudicated by emotion rather than rationality. And they entered it into the lexicon last year because of the fear that we are moving into or live in a post-truth world. And that, of course, gives us an opportunity to create a post-post-truth world. <laughs> and it, it, actually, it creates the obligation because the things that jeopardize humanity's existence. Don't care whether you think they're true or not. If you have a climate denier in the White House and all of the cabinets, climate change isn't going to stop. Denying climate change won't stop it. If you think that it doesn't matter whether you 
begin a nuclear war? Well, the environment doesn't care whether you think that's okay or not. And pandemics, which is sort of my subspecialty, the viruses just don't care whether you think they're dangerous or real or not. And when, when I took the job that I have now, which is with a friend of mine, Jeff Skoll, who was the president, first president, uh, first employee of eBay and first president of eBay, um, Jeff had, um, and he runs a movie company that maybe you've seen some of the participant movie films. He just got the Oscar last year for Spotlight, and they've got about 20 Oscars. Um, he started a Skoll Foundation, which gives money to social entrepreneurs. We've given 100 awards of $1.5 million each to people who are doing good things, with usually with very little. And he was worried that all the work that he had done would be for naught if one of these global threats came into existence. And he articulated the things that could bring humanity to its knees, in his mind. And they were pandemics and climate change and water and a regional war like like. Uh, in the Middle East, and uh, thermonuclear weapons. Now he would add famine and, and food insecurity and cyber weapons. But all of these things, in order to solve them, they are existential threats to humanity, and we have to solve them. And we can solve them. We're about to eradicate polio. In 2016, there were only 19 cases of polio on planet Earth. Only 16 in Pakistan. That's it. We're this close. You know, we did eradicate smallpox. We, we can stop these existential threats from happening. But we can't do it in a post-truth world. And we can't do it if we don't use our reason, our science, our rational mind. And, of course, we can't do it if we're not motivated by our heart and love. So do I think we are in danger of living in a world that has lost its um, rationality? Sure. There, there are some parts of that that are good, though. My rationality didn't believe that Maharaji was able to see the future and predict that smallpox could be eradicated. I was a scientist. I sat in front of him. I didn't believe it. But there are things that my rational mind can't apprehend that are more true than what we describe as truth. And love is certainly ephemeral. You can't, you can't, what is it? Love has its reasons that reasons cannot know. So uh, I, absolutely the question about vaccines. Um, I have to tell you that I, uh, of course, because I've seen the good part of vaccines, and I'll name three, eradicating smallpox with a vaccine that was 200 years old. Eradicating polio with a vaccine that was 70 years old. And I, I would say what the Gates Foundation has done to flip the ratio which when I was living in India and when I would go to Bangladesh or Nepal, I would go to communities where 50% of the children died before the age of five. Half of the kids had died. And you can imagine what life is like. It's a hell realm. It's a, you know, 
Tehronimus Bosch painting or Dante's Inferno when, when half of the children die before the age of five. And 80% of the children were unvaccinated against major childhood diseases. That's why they died. Tetanus and diphtheria, pertussis, rubella, measles. Those were the killers that killed half the children. And Bill Gates and his foundation have spent eight or nine billion dollars and now 80% of children all over the world are vaccinated against those diseases. We wouldn't have had the luxury of the conversation about pro or anti-vaccines if we were in the middle of a smallpox outbreak or a measles outbreak. Measles, by the way, one person, if I had it, I would infect 25 more. It's the fastest spreading disease. So I've seen the benefits um, and I've been preaching the benefits of vaccine for a long time. I also live in Marin County, which is the epicenter of the anti-vax movement on the planet. <laughs> so I haven't been all that successful. And I was telling RD earlier today that uh, last Saturday night, I was on a radio show, which is called Coast to Coast. Did anybody know? I didn't know what it was. Do you know what it is, really? <laughs> So uh, Coast to Coast uh, is a radio show that is at 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. I was on for two hours, 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. on Saturday night. Uh, that's, that's New York time. And uh, it goes to 600 radio stations. Uh, and the peak they had was 9 million people listening to me. And, and the, the least was 3 million. And I, uh, so I spoke for an hour and a half about my book and about smallpox. And then they opened it up to uh, questions and it goes to 50 states. So I got a question, I got some really funny questions uh, and I think they're screened uh, and I think they kind of whip the questioners into the most extreme question they could ask. And one of them was, um, you know, uh, well, Dr. Brilliant, you seem like a God-fearing man. How could you uh, ever believe all that uh, Guru bullshit. I mean, it's just like that, right, right out there. Um, but the questions about vaccination were really serious and deep. They weren't flippant. Um, they were people who really understood that uh, their kids have to have 35 vaccinations before they're two years old. And while any one of those vaccinations is justifiable by the cost, the benefits, and the risks, that schedule is insane. And so I understand that. On top of that, I think scientists have been arrogant and doctors have established a schedule that is, it, I mean, I, I think vaccines are the, the greatest scientific discovery of our lifetime, but the scientific community has been so arrogant about it. Um, and there have been terrible mistakes the, the biggest mistake was this uh, scientist named Andrew Wakefield who was paid by lawyers to lie and fabricate a scientific report linking vaccinations to autism. Lawyers who were plaintiffs in lawsuits against vaccination makers, vaccine makers, paid him $500,000 in England, the equivalent in pounds, I guess to lie, and he submitted to The Lancet, which is one of the most respected medical journals, a paper about 10 children that he said had autism 
because of vaccinations. And it was a lie. And it's worse than a lie because almost all of you have seen a family with an autistic child. To play with the heartstrings of people in that family by, by saying we know what caused your child to have I mean, it, it's more than a lie. It's the cruelest kind of lie. And he was found out, and he was barred from medicine. He lost his license. He went to jail. And then he got some people to make a movie called Vax, V-A-X-X, and some celebrities wanted to get it banned, and some celebrities wanted to promote it. So, so if, I was, if I was a parent today of young children and I wasn't a doctor, I don't know what I would think. And, and, and I'll tell you, you know, some of the vaccines, like chickenpox vaccine, is silly. It's a silly vaccine. But now that we have it, it's so hard to think that your child will be the one that's not vaccinated. So I think it's a conundrum. I don't think it's as easy as I thought 10 years ago. I think it's more complicated. I've learned a lot by listening, not just to the people on coast to coast but to the people in my community. Um, I still think vaccines are the greatest science we've had. I do want to say one more thing, because it gets a little confusing. I'm sorry about all the, the medical crap, but um, you know, people think that if you save all those lives from those children, that's why we have population growth, and that's why we're facing water scarcity and population, population-caused political skirmishes. It's the opposite. And this is the most counterintuitive thing. Uh, when I was a professor at Michigan and I was teaching epidemiology, we called this phenomenon the child survival hypothesis. Because the hypothesis was that if you live in a family where half the kids die before the age of five, you're going to want to make more babies. You're going to want to have a couple of insurance births and replacement births. And your mindset is going to be, if I don't have eight babies, I won't have four survive. And if you're in India, if you don't have a male son, he can't perform the last funeral rites. So you even add another factor for this. So the large family size is a product of how you grew up and how stable your family was and how likely it was that your kids were going to live. And the hypothesis was that if you reduce the death rate so that all the kids lived into adulthood, that parents would make the decision to have smaller families. That was the hypothesis. Well, today we call that the child survival theorem because it's been proved in 100 countries over 50 years. There's no question about it. And it makes sense. So vaccines, which save children's lives, actually reduce the population, and, and you have a healthier population with kids living longer lives. That's not to say that they're perfect. I pushed smallpox vaccination. In my book, I talk about things I did, which, you know, I mean, I raided a house in the middle of the night, forcibly vaccinated people, knocked down their doors. I did a lot of stuff because if we hadn't eradicated smallpox, I feared that it, the demon would get loose all over the world again. But I know that one out of every million children that are vaccinated against smallpox will die from the vaccine. We have enough data to prove that. So what do you do? Do you tell a child 
or a mother that there's no chance your child's going to die from this vaccine? No, there is a chance. And how do you weigh all these things? And, you know, what's your, what's your summum bonum? What's your highest principle? These are very hard things. And they're much more complicated than I thought 10 years ago. Thank you. R.D., do you have any closing remarks? We just got going. How many of you were at that church when we did something like this two years ago or so? Wait, wasn't that fun? That was fun. That was a lot of fun. Our tag team. What would you like to leave people with? Tomorrow's the inauguration. This is, not tomorrow, sorry, sorry, sorry. We're, 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 yeah, thank God. We're close to the inauguration, and the day after that, the Million Women March, hopefully, which will have a lot of men and more than a million. Um, and this is only one incarnation in long lifetimes. Uh, how, what would you like to leave people with as a, as a final blessing and um, summary statement to summarize all of our lives into one succinct sentence? <laughs> Go inside. Go inside. The problems all outside. Let go inside to to solve them, and you and you can be. That person, that's all. For you. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it's not a phone call. Well, I want to. I want to. Can I? Can I put the cherry on the top of that Sunday? <laughs> so when R.D. and Girja and a whole bunch of us started uh, after we eradicated smallpox, we wanted to do something like that again, and we got together in Michigan and we started an organization called the Save a Foundation. And uh, as of today, Save's projects are giving back sight to more than four million blind people. And when we started it, we were just a bunch of folks. We had $25,000. Um, now along the way, uh, SEVA identified itself as not a religious organization, but a spiritually motivated organization. And of course we had people from every religion you could imagine working together. Um, but we often had this conversation of, is it more important to be here now? I think I heard that phrase someplace before. Is it more important to be or is it more important to do? And many of the people in SEVA felt 
that if we could give back sight or save lives, that is our spiritual path. And many people in Seva felt that if you don't go inside and meditate and understand who we are, that you can go a million miles an hour in the wrong direction. So I want to leave you with one word. So we were really split 50-50. We had the people who were the doers, and we had the people with the beers. And we decided that we would reach a consensus on one thing only, which of course was doobie dooby doo. <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.